Well, it's, uh, our communion service is like a family gathering tonight, and we uh, want to have our hearts uh, tender and open before the Lord, honest, uh, before the Lord as a family. There is, uh, you heard the news report about the uh, train wreck in L.A. a while ago, and there were like, I think, 15 people who died, and there were dozens who were seriously uh, injured in that. And they tried to look into the cause of the train wreck and said that it was probable, probably almost certainly, that the conductor was uh, texting on his cell phone. He was distracted from his important purpose, and it was a deadly thing to be distracted in that way. And that's true. That's, that's common. It's a common tactic that Satan would uh, draw our attention over here on something that's not that important to keep our attention away from something that's uh, life and death. And that's true in terms of our own personal holiness and our own terms of our, of our own sin. It's been true in my own life, I know, that often Satan will try to get me to think about it. The world, the flesh, the devil will create a diversion over here and will get me thinking about that over there when the real game is going on over here. It's a criminal tactic, you know, to go into a store and have somebody make a big distraction, make a big fuss over here or this place in town, and all the law enforcement people rush over there when the bank is being robbed over here or when a life is being taken over here. It's a military tactic to create a diversion. This is, looks like this is where the attack is really coming, and so all the resources go over to where the attack is when the real attack is somewhere else. Here's all that Satan has to do for most of us to keep us completely ineffective is to make a big noise in some area of our life where he's continually done that. Now, I don't want to be unduly personal or painful here, but the, the illustration that I can't help but thinking about is a man and his sexual moral purity and the battle that a man is facing to, to have moral purity and his thought life. This can be one of those huge life-dominating, this-is-all-I-think-about kinds of things for a man. He can, he can take all of his holiness and he can wrap it up in this one thing. If I succeed in this, I've succeeded. I've overcome sin. If I fail at this, I'm a failure. I'm a loser. I haven't overcome sin. Satan, all he has to do is stir up some men's minds continually, and that's really all that they think about. And if you, like I, have had seasons, long, prolonged seasons of moral freedom in my personal thought life, one of the things that you notice when that happens is there's a whole lot more going on in your mind and in your life than just that one sin. Is this making any sense? And there's one amen. That's good. One good. One, one, that's hard to talk about, isn't it? It's hard for me to talk about. The danger, though, is to kind of just talk about things that don't, that aren't really significant, that don't really matter. And I don't know what it is for you. I just give you kind of an autobiographical comment. Satan would love to to get one big kind of red herring thing and get us to think about that while he just absolutely robs us blind while he's making a bunch of noise over here. That he does. And he does it faithfully. He does it regularly, not just with men, but men and, and women, everyone. And it's appropriate for us as we approach a communion table to examine our hearts. That's what the Bible says. Examine yourself and see, take a deep and honest look at your own life and see about your own standing before the Lord. And that's the purpose of what I want to talk about uh, here tonight. Um, I'm I'm calling my little talk here as we approach the uh, communion table, coffee table 
repentance. Coffee table repentance. And my text is uh, the words of uh, the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17. Matthew 4 and verse 17. While you turn there, let me just ask you a question. What do you do when you are confronted with your own sin? What do you do when you're confronted with your own sin? How many of you remember the last time that you were confronted with your own sin? How does that happen? You know, somebody walks up to you and says, you did this and that wasn't right. That would be one way, right? It might just be that you're reading your Bible some morning and you think, oh my, woe is me for I am undone, right? And you, you say, this is a, I'm guilty of this. Or you might be, I hope, that, I hope that sometime during preaching, you know, you like, oh wow, he just sent me right between the eyes. I had an elderly man in, in my church. He's since uh, gone on to be with the Lord, but he was a hard-nosed old buzzard, I'll tell you. Why. He rarely would admit anything wrong. i never forget one time when he came visit my study, and then he, is it okay for me to call somebody a hard-nosed old buzzard when they're in heaven already? He would understand. And I remember, him, I remember talking to him. It's hard for a younger man to confront an older man with, with his sin. There's just something that was so glaring. I wanted to go, you know, you've been saved for like ever, and, and everybody knows this, and nobody ever tells you about it, but I'm going to tell you. You know, and so I remember telling him that, and I remember him, I remember him walking over to the door of my study and looking back, and and he and he said, "Well, if I've been wrong, then I am sincerely sorry." And he left. I'm like, "That's about as close as we're going to get to." And I remember him calling me on the phone, going, "Holy Spirit, hit me between the eyes with a two before this morning." I'm like, yeah, can you? Can anybody relate to that? He was reading the Daily Bread. Seemed like a simple, innocuous kind of a thing to do. Reading the daily bread, wham, he gets hit between the eyes with a two before. One of the sweetest things that could ever happen to a person. Confronted with their own sin. Has this happened to you? How has this happened to you recently? Anybody? Want to come and give a testimony? Yeah. Sure, no, probably not. You get, you know, and you're confronted with your own sin. Every Christian should have this experience. Now, what do you do? My question to you is, when you're confronted with your own sin, when your own sin is exposed, when somebody puts his finger on your sin, when the Holy Spirit puts his finger on your sin, let me ask you this. What do you do then? What do you do when you're confronted with your own sin? When you realize that you have had an attitude that's sinful. When you realize that you said words that weren't right. When you realize your attitude has been wrong. When you realize that you've acted in such a way as not as pleasing, not pleasing the Lord. When you realize that, that you consistently neglected something that you ought to have done, what do you do when you're confronted with your own sin? I have been an observer of human nature, especially my own. And let me suggest some things that people do when they're confronted with their own sin. I have eight of them, and they're a part of my introduction, so I don't get all like excited when I get through all eight really fast. First... When you're confronted with your own sin, what do we usually do? What do we usually do when we're confronted with our own sin? What's the first thing that people naturally do when they're confronted with... We have police officers here. We deny it, right? Officer, I didn't run the light. The light, the light wasn't red. Am I right about that? Is this true? Yeah. They deny it. I mean, they can't... You can't... And you want to have the evidence, right? You got the evidence right there. You're like, come back and look at my little gun here where it says how fast you were going. Am I right? And then, and then when, they're when they're confronted with the with the evidence, and they can't deny it, then they move, right? But the first thing we do is we say, uh-uh, I, I didn't do it. You, you have children, right? And you've seen them do this. They just in the, flatly, in the face of the evidence, they deny it. That's the first thing that we do. Here's another one. After we deny it, maybe, and we hide it and cover it, we, we, let's say we can't deny it anymore because somebody has taken our nose and rubbed our nose in it and said, no, you, you, you did do this. Then we resort to kind of what I call the red herring, this is, a, this is something that's done often in argument. This is true in the argument that we have with the Holy Spirit. 
In, in other words, we might say something like this. Okay, okay, okay. I get it. Um, but, but, but other people did it too. Which, as if that would absolve you from guilt. Yes, you know, I, 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 I did that. But there were other people that, or maybe we say, I did it, but you've done worse. Others have done worse. I hear this all the time. But, you know, that's a, almost the first thing somebody does. They deny deny what they did. Or they say, yeah, I, hey, that's true. I've done it. But, hey, I know, and this is what they tell me. I know people in your church. I know people in your church have done worse than this. And you know what? I never, I never deny that. I'm like, you know, I don't, please don't bring me, at, you know, something you found. As if, you know, you were accused of murder and you go, yes, it's true. I killed him in cold blood, but I'm not the only one who's killed people in cold blood. Others have done that too. As if the law enforcement or the judge are going to go, oh, okay, well then, you're off. <laughs> what on earth? This happens all the time. Um, we are confined with our sin, we usually deny it. Or we, or we resort to the red herring. Or third, we excuse it, right? We say, yeah, it's true, but you have to understand, there was a good reason for my sin. And that may be true. There are always reasons. Reasons are not excuses, however. Or if we, ex- we tend to, if we deny it, or we resort to the red herring, or we excuse it, or maybe we minimize it. We say, yeah, that's true, but it just wasn't that big of a deal. You know, yeah, I was, you know, or there's a lot of ways of saying it. It wasn't that big of a deal. I mean, what are you so worked up about? Or, and by the way, again, you know, you know your own heart, and you know if you have children. You, hear, you see this with, with, with children, too. Or, or the sixth thing we, we tend to do, and sometimes it's in this exact order that we go right through a progression, and we may do all of these things, anything but just honestly admit that we did wrong. We may say, yes, I was wrong, but then we blame others and we don't take responsibility for this. We saw this in the garden, right? Uh, the woman you gave me, the serpent. Or we feel remorse for it, but we don't forsake it and hate it. And sometimes this looks really good, you know. You're confronted with your sin, you, you know, the evidence is right there, and you can't deny it, and you can't minimize it, and you can't blame somebody else. And so you say, I feel awful about this. I feel awful. And you may even weep bitter tears because, after all, sin is messy business and it messes up our life. And you can really feel sorry for yourself when you've messed up your life. But you've come completely short of where God wants you to be when you're just sorry that bad things have happened to you because of what you've done. Feeling remorse over sin but not hating it and forsaking it is not doing what God says to do about sin. We saw that with Esau. He's weeping. In the New Testament it says he repented, but his repentance wasn't genuine. His repentance was rejected because he wasn't upset with the fact that he broke in fellowship with God. He was upset because of the consequences of his sin. Or there's another thing that we do. We we admit it, and then we continue in it. Or we delay in forsaking it. Said so that's true, and uh, we go on. What should you do? What should you do when you're confronted with your sin? And I hope that you aren't so hardened that you don't regularly get confronted with your own sin. Again, I would often say, how often do you think you sin? How often do you think you sin? I, I want to be careful. These personal illustrations are a two-edged sword. They work really well and capture people's attention, and they're very concrete, but they are personal, after all. <laughs> so, but I, here I go. Fools rush in where angels fear to tread, right? In, in, our, in our home, we have a lot of people living there, a huge bunch of people living in our home. Frequently, they sin against one another, probably not as often as you do in your house, but because we're pastors and we're wonderful and all, but... 
and and then and then you know I'm the one that's usually the one that's responsible for um, stimulating repentance. <laughs> so I'll bring him in and say, you know, we're going to have a you know discussion about that. I'm like the police officer, and I'm the judge and the jury, and it's really not an enviable position to be in. I'm a referee, and you you, you know, and, and you you come and you say, you know, what did you do? What did you do? And and then always, always, I'm not upset about this, but always, the first word out of that person's mouth is somebody else's name. Always. Almost. Almost all, you know, it's really, really rare, you know. You just ran over your little brother's bike in the driveway on purpose because he wouldn't move it. This didn't really happen. It's just a story, right? You say, well, if you're not going to move, I'm just going to run over it. You just ran over the bike, and it's a mangled you know, thing. And then you say, did, did, what did you do? Meaning you want him to say, I ran over my brother's bike on purpose. And they feel really bad about it. It was sinful, wrong. And they always say, Tommy left his bike behind the car. He always does that. And I told him. Okay, and quite, it's like, I didn't ask you what he did. I ask you what you did. Can you hear the voice of the Holy Spirit saying to you, what did you do? What did you do? What did you think? What did you not do? And we can't get anywhere. We can't even begin to get to the right place until we're willing to talk about our own, our own sin. And we are really, really eager to talk about other people's sins. The after all, they're wicked, those people that are championing the, the homosexual rights. They're wicked. They're evil. All those, all those bad people out there, you know, they do so many, so many bad things. They believe all the wrong things. It was, we're eager to talk about that. But, again, how often do you personally sin? And what do you do and what should you do? Well, according to the Bible, the only right response to sin is what Jesus said here and what um, John the Baptist came saying. John the Baptist came saying, Matthew 3 and verse 2, uh, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. First words out of his mouth, repent, repent. Matthew 4 and verse 17, first words out of Jesus' mouth in public official ministry from that time Jesus began to preach and say repent repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand the right thing to do this is the first commandment of the Lord Jesus the first thing Jesus said remember the great commission is go into all the world and make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe whatever I have commanded you and this first command is repent it's first, nobody is a Christian who isn't a repenter. And, and, and if you don't repent, you can't be a Christian. You can't be a Christian. And Christians keep repenting or they're not Christians. If they may say, if you say you're a Christian and you don't keep repenting, you're not a Christian. I can prove that. I will tonight. What should you do when you're confronted with your sin? You don't deny it. You don't tell other people are sinners. You don't excuse it. You don't minimize it. You don't partially confess it. You don't blame others. You don't feel remorse but not forsake it. You don't admit it and then continue in it. You repent. 
What is repentance and why is that a, so vital? The Bible says he who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will find mercy. Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen. Why is repentance so vital? I've got, before we go to the communion table, nine things, unless I think up more while I'm talking, nine things. Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. That's what he said in Matthew 9 and verse 13. I came to call sinners to repentance. That's what he came to do. It's a good thing. He said he called. Listen to me. Some of you are familiar with church, like my Uncle Bill for years. He could give you the... If you were to pastor preach and the pastor didn't get it right, my Uncle Bill could graciously correct the pastor, but he never personally repented. And I've seen him weep tears, bitter tears, because he spent all of his time raising his kids without repenting. And there are people that are sitting in these pews right now church going but you have not repented and god knows it and probably your family knows it and other people too too and if unless you repent you are on the outside of the kingdom of god it doesn't matter how much uh, baggage that you have that's christian how much language that you have that's christian unless you come to a point where you are absolutely abhor your sin and hate your sin and you repent of your sin you cannot be in the kingdom of heaven jesus did not jesus came to call sinners to repentance and you ought to want to be in that group because you are a sinner after all it, jesus did not call sinners to be baptist he called sinners to repentance and then immediately after they become baptist but you repent of your sin or you can't get in the kingdom. That's what Jesus came to do. And repentance, what is this? Repentance is a total change. Repentance is a total change. You, you might ask, and there's some discussion about this, is repentance a new way of thinking? You know, metanoia, change of mind, right? People will sometimes say, your mind changes. Or is it deep sorrow for sin? And hatred of sin, is it like, sometimes you'll hear people preach this way, it's like, no, repentance is when you grieve over sin and you're sorry and you weep, and that's what repentance is. It's not just a light, kind of like change of mind, it's, it's, a, it's a feeling of sorrow, that's what it is. No, somebody else comes along and says, no, no, repentance is simply something that you do. What is it? Is repentance something that happens in your mind, in your emotions, or in your will? That's a good question. Since Jesus came preaching repentance, and repentance is the only appropriate response to sin, and you sin all the time, then wouldn't it be a good idea for you to get a grip on what is repentance then? And the short answer is it's all the above. It's all the above. There's three Greek words for repentance, and each one has a nuance of meaning. A change of mind, there's the intellectual element, the change of heart, the emotional element, the change of behavior, behavior, the volitional element. In other words, repentance is a complete change of direction, mind, will, and emotion. It's all the above, and it always happens when somebody really gets saved. Some of you think you're saved, and you are not because you have not repented. There hasn't been a change. No such a thing as a person being saved and not being changed. That can't happen. That can't happen. There is a heresy that has got, that's gotten a lot of traction in independent Baptist circles like our own. And this is the heresy that's like, uh, you know, kind of like formulate, I said the words, therefore I must be saved. My mama told me I'm saved kind of thing. That's gotten a lot of traction. There's a, one of the things, I was talking to Kyle. Kyle's on the way home from the retreat, and he's telling me, Dad, I preached my heart out. I did my best. I preached 50 minutes, three times. I did what I could. I don't know, Dad, I don't know. I said, did you tell him? 
Did you tell them what it looked like to be a Christian? These kids need to know what it looks like to be a Christian. I don't know why these precious 60 young people to be able to get through this church and think that salvation is something they cannot feel and see and know is true, that it's just some kind of little decision that they made one time, some kind of card they signed, or their mama told them that I would love for them to go away from the church if they have not received Christ by the time they get into the, to, to, uh, to college. I would love for them to say this. They always talked about what it was like, and I always knew it never had happened to me. Do you see this? They always talked about what it was like, but I always knew that never happened to me. Not, yeah, I'm saved. I was baptized. My mom told me that I was saved. I can tell you the Romans Road or whatever, the decisionism kind of a thing. This is a heresy that has a lot of traction in our circles. We need to be able to think through all of us, teachers and parents and pastors that we want, and I know this is true here, we need to think this through and we need to say no, along with what salvation is repenting people who are different in their thinking, different in their emotions, different in their will. They're changed people. New creatures in Christ Jesus. Listen, some of you are here tonight and you are not saved. You've never repented. There is no change. You said yes or you went forward or you even got baptized or somebody told you repeatedly that you were saved, but there's no evidence in your life that your mind, that your will, that your emotions ever came to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and you got saved. There are a lot of people sitting in good churches that have had the gospel, basic propositional truths of the gospel, wash over them all the time, so they, enough that they think they're saved, but they have never had the breath of God blow into their life when they've been broken over their sin. My goodness, you can tell the difference between somebody who's really met with God and they know God, and somebody who's kind of a cultural Christian. I would love to weed out cultural Christians and say, admit it, admit who you really are. Don't go on and pretend that just because you're hanging around Christian people and you know Christian talk, tell me something happened in your life where your life is different, where you hate sin, where you love God, where you're hungry for God, where you grieve over your sin. You have a coffee table revival regularly where you go home and you fall on your face in front of your family and you admit that you have sinned, that you've broken the law of God, that you're far from God. Who here could say that's not true about them? That there aren't things in their life? Who Can you please tell me who here could you say, I know God, I know Him well, His Spirit lives within me, and I go from week to week to week without ever having to confess sin to my family. Is there anybody here that can really tell me, don't tell me that you can do that and you're really a Christian. Don't tell me that you can do that and you're really a Christian. No, real Christians are sensitive about their sin. The Spirit regularly tells them that they have sinned. And real Christians live in a continual attitude of repentance because Jesus came to call sinners to this kind of complete change of mind, will, and emotions that is only the result of a miracle of God, repentance. Let's pray. Father, as I continue to preach, I pray that you would fall on this assembly right now and that there would be folks here who are not saved, that you would expose to their own hearts that they are not really saved. And I pray, Lord, that others that, that, would, that have regularly strayed away from you and have made no attempt to confess and to repent, would, that, Lord, that before we go to the communion table tonight, there would be a pressure in our chest. We must be right with God. Amen. There's a third thing. The first thing that we should do when we realize the opportunity of the kingdom is there is we should repent. I like this. It's in Mark chapter 1 and verse 15. After this, John 
was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> the time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. It's like Jesus said, here's the kingdom and here's how you get into it. You repent into the kingdom. The first thing that we do when we realize the kingdom of God is the possibility, the rule of God is the possibility, we repent into the kingdom of God. We repent and believe. Jesus said, repent. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand and you want in. You don't have to see things God and go God's way and go God's way. You get to see things God's way and you get to walk God's way. It's like the kingdom is here. You get to be in it. You get God's rule. You get to have God's rule. So Jesus is coming along saying, you get to have God's rule over your life. Repent into this. That's what Jesus came preaching. That you have the possibility of God's way coming over you. And God, and you believe God's way and you behave God's way. Repent into this. Is what he's saying. And other ways saying that is believe. It's the same thing. What was Jesus saying when he said the kingdom of heaven is at hand? It's like right now. He was saying, hurry up, repent. You have a little window of opportunity with God. And if you are hearing my voice, you have a little window of opportunity right now. Now listen to me. Listen to me, churchgoer. Listen to me, churchgoer. It's not enough for you to be a nice girl or a nice guy. It's not enough for you to own a Bible. It's not enough for you to know the basic points of the gospel. Hell will be populated with people like you. It's not enough. You are not a part of God's kingdom unless you have repented into God's kingdom. It's, it's not enough for you to say, but I know all about God's kingdom, but you are not in God's kingdom unless you repented and Jesus came along saying, here's the window of opportunity. Run and jump. Go through the window of opportunity into God's kingdom. What is the window of opportunity into the work of God and the rule of God in your life? What is it? It is repentance. It is repentance. It is honestly seeing my sin the way God sees my sin and a change of life, mind, will, and emotions that comes along with knowing who Jesus is and what my sin is like. Repentance is what everyone needs most. The Bible says it in Acts 17.30, Truly these times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now He commands all men everywhere to repent. Have you ever repented into the kingdom of God? He commands all men everywhere. That would be us, right? To repent, to have this total change of life, mind, will, and emotions that introduces us into the kingdom of God. Listen, I'm telling you this is a life and death kind of thing. It's like you are by the side of the road, bleeding to death. You're about to go out into eternity, and you're dying, and your lifeblood is flowing away from you. This is the kind of way this is. Have you repented into the kingdom of heaven? It's not going to be enough before a holy God of the universe to say, there are hypocrites at Evangel Baptist Church. God would say, there have always been hypocrites at Evangel Baptist Church. They're working hard to bring people in. And among the people, there are always hypocrites on any given day. That is no excuse that doesn't get you to heaven because you can point out somebody else who's a sinner. That doesn't get you to heaven because you smug and you feel like you're better than other people or in your own kind of like 
your own kind of a way that you have, that your own kind of personal morality that you have around yourself like armor is going to insulate you from the white hot holiness of the living God. You think your excuses aren't going to be blown away when you face God in eternity? And he says, did you ever repent into my kingdom? If you haven't repented tonight, you should repent into the kingdom of God. And if your believers should continue a continual spirit of repentance, it's for all men everywhere. In these times, he commands. He doesn't suggest. He commands all men everywhere to repent. He commands you to repent. We're nice here all the time. Won't you please come to Jesus, you know? Won't you please, as if Jesus really is needy. He's not needy. You get to get in the kingdom. Run, run to the cross and repent. He commands all men everywhere to repent. Listen, you can't. You're, listen, you're here in this building tonight. You cannot ever tell God, I didn't hear. You can't ever tell God it was never spoken clearly to me. I'm speaking it clearly to you tonight. The only way for any of us, sinners that we are, sinners before a holy God, for ever any of us to be right with God, we must repent of a wonderful opportunity. Run and jump, you know, big opportunity. Jesus says the kingdom is at hand. Repent into the kingdom. He commands all men. Everywhere to repent. Bad things should stir us to repent. That's number five. Bad things should stir us to repent. Take your Bible, look in Luke and verse 13. Chapter 13, Luke 13. Here we have kind of a, a, kind of a well-known tragedy that occurred. And I want you to notice the response. This is Luke 13, 1. There, there were present at the season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. This short version is this is really bad news, something really bad that happened to people. Jesus said to, to them, don't suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered. Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? It's like the 9-11, right? When the tower went down, it's like, did God judge those people in the tower? And the, Jesus would answer, you know, kind of like this, this statement here. Don't think that those people were worse sinners, that you're worse than they are, that they're worse than you are, but... And he gives some re- advice here in a minute. I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. It's like they, you may die quietly in your bed someday. Your heart may stop tonight. You may get hit by a car this week. Somebody might say cancer to you someday. Jesus might come back. Those really aren't the issues. The issue is not will I ever die. Of course you will die. The issue is when you stand before God, have you, you stand before God having repented of your sin. This is true. This is God's truth. And this is the real question. I tell you no, but unless you repent, unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelled in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you shall likewise perish. In other words, when some major catastrophe happens and we look, oh, is that the judgment of God? Of course, the, that's the results of sin in a world, and what happened to them is going to happen to you. They just got it sooner than you, so you want to repent as soon as you can. In other words, anytime you look at the news at night, you see an ambulance go by, or you hear about somebody who had a heart attack, or somebody else who got diagnosed with cancer what should you think right then you should think i better repent i better repent that's what you should think that's what jesus said i better repent when you watch some tragic thing happen don't think i'm better than they are they're worse than i am think i better repent bad things should make people think i better be right with god dear a friend of mine recently died 
his funeral, when, when, when a godly man dies and you go to his funeral, you just sit there and go, God, with the days I have left, please help me love my wife, love my kids, and do what you want me to do, that you would be pleased with how I spend these fleeting years of my life. Or when somebody who's ungodly, who doesn't know the Lord, dies, you sit there and you think, God, help me, that I would be able to tell more people of Christ and His wonderful power to forgive. This is just the way it works. Good things, the bad things should make us repent. Good things should make us repent. What's the passage on that? Romans 2, the goodness of God leads us to repentance. So when you're watching evening news and something really awful happens, you should think, oh God, oh God, I repent. When you're like sitting by Lake Michigan up on a bluff and you're watching the sunset, and it's been the most beautiful day of your life, and you realize that God has been kind and loving and forgiving you, and you're in perfect health, and you've eaten well. Repent! Repent on a day like that. Because the goodness of God is to tug you To repentance, this is all what it's about. This is the way into the kingdom of God. This is the way to happiness and joy and life. Repentance is one of the greatest of God's gifts. It's a gift of God. Acts 11, 18, when they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God, saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. You know the story behind this is the Jews were thinking they were the only ones who get get in on things. and And he realized, no, no, God has granted repentance to the Gentiles. It's as if repentance is a gift that God gives, you might ask. Is repentance something I do, or is it something God gives? And the answer is yes. The Bible says that. You do it, God gives it. That's the, there we are with that old tension again. No, don't argue about that. Don't bicker and argue about that. Stand in awe of God. And, and I guess I would just say, if any of this stuff is tugging on your heart, even just a little bit, It may be that our God in heaven is granting to you the gift of repentance. It makes all the difference in the world when a person is given the gift of repentance and they kind of have, they see this is right, this is true, I must press into the kingdom. Here's what it says, and I love this, this is 2 Timothy 2.15. It talks about the servant of the Lord not, not striving, but being patient and humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If, and I love this, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. They come to their senses. They escape the snare of the devil. God gives repentance. God grants repentance. It's not just once or twice in the Bible that, that it says this. So along, among with other things, repentance is a gift from God that God gives. Jesus told the church to be zealous when it comes to repentance. Remember that? In Revelation, he said, be zealous. This is the word we don't frequently use in our time, it might be passionate. You have a passion for repentance. Deeply believe you have a passion for repentance. Now, just uh, be honest with me. Friend. We're, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We profess to be brothers and sisters in Christ. We're now approaching the table represents the death and burial and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Are you, are you a repenter? Are you, is that true about you? Are you a person who has a re- repented and does repent? Or are you a person that excuses yourself, that points to other people, that minimizes your sin, does everything but says, you're right, I'm wrong, I repent, God cleanse me, I'm completely without excuse before you, you are a holy God and I am a sinful person. My only hope is your righteousness. Jesus told the church to be zealous in this. They say in Romania there was a revival and the people... In, around the Romanian church, they say, began to call Christians repenters because they frequently repented of their sin. 
One more thing. Repentance is the most direct route. It's the only route to the pleasant land called abundant life or fullness of joy. Let me appeal to three beautiful stories that Jesus told in a cluster all there together. Remember the stories in Luke 15 where he told lost coin, lost sheep, lost son. And in, in between he kept saying over and over again, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who comes to repentance. I love that. What happens when a person really repents into the kingdom or repents of their sin? What happens in heaven? What happens where anybody has sins? There's rejoicing. There's a party. Oh, there we go. There we go. The Bible doesn't say there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of heaven when a person gives a good excuse for the bad thing they did. Right? It doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't say there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels in heaven when a person points out that they found us another sinner that goes to Evangel Baptist, and so it's okay for them or all the dirty, rotten, filthy, godless things that they've done are cool now because they found a guy who's a Baptist who also has done dirty, rotten, filthy things. What? That's, the, that's folly. That's foolishness. That's ignorance. That's rebellion against God. There's no other way to describe that. Oh, I've had this experience myself because I'm a sinner. And like I told you earlier, you've got a big family. They all see this. They see attitudes that are bad. They see selfishness that's so vile. They see these things. They hurt because you, you're, if you're a dad, your sin doesn't just hurt you. It hurts your wife really bad. It hurts your kids. It hurts the people that you work with. You know this. And I've been blessed. I've been gifted by having men, sometimes women, men come along. And preaching or writing or personal confrontation and put their finger on my life, like Nathan and David, you know. And and I have come home many, many times, and I have had to gather the family around me and kneel down at the old coffee table and say to my kids, I'm really sorry the way I've taught your mom has not been right. I've been wrong in the way I, I talked to your mom. It was sin. I'm really, really sorry. I, I, I'm grieved. I should have given you better direction than I have. I've been selfish and off, kind of doing my own thing. And God showed me that I was wrong. And I'm going to try again, God helping me. And let, would you pray with me? It's a coffee table revival that comes home. Revival ever come home in your house, men? Please tell me, men of God, that you repent and your wife gets to see that. I know, I know, you know, you're giving her stuff she can throw up to you, right? And you don't want to do you go she doesn't need any help, right? She's perfectly capable of telling you that what where you're wrong and the last thing you want to do is, you know, have a crack in your armor in front of your wife, and that's going to keep you very unhappy and far really from God. And your, your kids need to see a model of repentance because you know what they're going to do? They're going to grow up and they're going to sin too. And they need to know what it looks like for a person to make their way back to the cross. I've seen my dad do this. I've seen him weep bitter tears over his own sin. I've seen my mom grieve over the things that she said that she knows that are wrong. I've seen my parents. They showed me what it looks like to repent. Now this is what our children more than anything that we can give them they need to see us they need to watch us show this is what i say in my home sometimes with the boys and girls in our home they're kind of working on growing like mom and dad are and i will say you know if they're not doing the other sibling if they're not doing what they ought to do show them what it looks like show them brother show your brother what it looks like to have that quality and that's what we're saying here 
is if you want other people to repent, show them what it looks like to repent. And the Bible teaches that repentance is the most direct, it's the only route to joy. And so there's an irony in this, right? It's like the way to be happy is to be sorry first. The way to be joyful is to be really broken first. The only way to really know that you have a seat at the table in the kingdom is to have gone through bitter grief over your own sin first. And that's the way that we continually walk with the Lord. Now, I've taken a great deal of time, but I think you will admit this is important. And if you don't admit that, you should repent. So um, so the, the, the Bible says, I remember when I first preached after I was married. Lois, I don't know if you remember this, but we had a little apartment together, and we went to this little church. We found this little church, Ludlow Falls Baptist Church, a little beautiful little brick church there. And the, the elderly pastor knew I was pastor and training for ministry in between church. And so he said to me one night, um, Pastor, uh, why don't you, Ken, why don't you preach? And, and so um, I remember preaching that night, just preaching about sin, about holiness. And I remember giving an invitation, just telling people, if you want to come and you want to kneel down here at the front, you'd like to ask forgiveness for things that you've done that are wrong, maybe you're a Christian, you just want to publicly confess and publicly repent, you know. It's like at home you have the coffee table revival. Here you have the altar revival where you just publicly say, I, that's true about me, you know. I, I remember, I'll never forget that night, there was this beautiful woman that was there. Very beautiful woman, dark hair, brown eyes. Um, she came forward knelt down at the altar. So I went and hugged her because it was Lois. And, and uh, she's just sobbing, just sobbing, just weeping. And I put my arm around her, you know, and, oh, I thought, this is so wonderful. This is so wonderful. Now, why is it? Is it because of some kind of psychological twisted mind? Yes, that may be true, but that's not why. I, I was happy because that's naturally what we, we are when a person says, I, they, we all know we're saying, we all know others sinners, we're sinners, but when we recognize it and when we're broken by it and we see the holiness of God and we see, I'm, I'm begging with you tonight, I'm trying my best to explain this. Is this something that you can say, this characterizes my life? Because these are the kind of people that ought to go to the communion table and can say, yes, yes, Lord, I understand your death. Yes, I have entered into what this means, your death and your resurrection life. And if that hasn't happened tonight, wouldn't it be wonderful to have a communion table revival tonight as we distribute the elements of communion for you just to say, Oh, holy God in heaven, I've broken for the first time maybe ever or for the first time in a long time, I bow my heart, my stubborn will. I admit, oh, I know, you can always think of somebody else's scandalous sins that are worse, more colorful than your own. But those sins are not keeping you from God. The only sins keeping you from fellowship with God or even the life of God are your own sins. And they're varied, you know. I heard once this apocryphal tale about demons in hell. Maybe you heard it. And they were having a discussion. How are we going to do our work, you know? And they collaborating together. One of them said, I know what we'll do. <clears throat> we'll just tell them there's, there's no heaven. There's, we'll just tell them there's no heaven. The de- demons agreed, that's a great idea. We'll, we'll just tell them there's no heaven. Why would anybody want to live for God if there's no heaven, no reward? Another demon kind of laughed and said, I know what we'll do. 
We'll tell them that there's no hell. We'll teach them there's no hell. They'll believe that. But, but another demon, in a darker way, he said, no, no, no. I have a better idea than that. We'll, we'll, we'll just tell them there's no hurry. We'll tell them there's no hurry. It's true, perhaps, but you can take care of this some other time. I hope tonight that in the few moments between now and when those elements are distributed that you'll be able to take them in hand tonight and then you'll have an honest assessment of your own heart before God that there will be a personal revival between you and the Lord, a coffee table revival when you go home. Who in your family is going to be first to the coffee table to get down on their knees and to say, you know, what I've done or what I've said or how I've behaved or what I've neglected. This is me. I was wrong. Please forgive me. And repent openly. Wouldn't that be something? Um, Let's uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper together.